Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Then we will believe him. He trusted in God and let him deliver him now. And if he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Today for a few minutes I want to speak to this subject called to carry called to carry let's have a word of prayer together today god thank you so much for this day that you've given us god thank you for this opportunity to come together to worship you on this palm sunday lord we are reminded today of your triumphant entry into jerusalem that was right on schedule as a fulfillment of prophecy and god we're thankful today that if your word has declared it then we can trust it And God, we're reminded of that even on this Palm Sunday. God, I pray that as we consider this place of the skull, I pray that as we consider the cross today, that we would be reminded of your love for us and that we'd be challenged to go out and to live a life that is pleasing to you. We love you in Jesus' name. And everybody said today, back in 2009, I asked my now wife, Katie, to marry me. And I I remember I was a little bit uh, nervous about this moment in this process, and I wanted to make sure that I was going to do it the right way. And the first thing that I wanted to make sure that I did was to ask my future father-in-law, Katie's dad, for permission to marry his daughter, who happens to be here this morning. And uh, and so I was nervous about that, and I, I went to him and I said, can we talk about uh, our future and my future with Katie. And, and uh, you know, I thought we would kind of maybe go out to a nice sit-down restaurant and talk for a while about this very serious decision. And we ended up going to McDonald's. And uh, the whole conversation took about 15 minutes. And I remember I was nervous going into that conversation, you know, asking for permission and his blessing uh, to marry uh, his daughter. And he gave me his blessing and his permission. So thank you once again this morning. And uh, he said yes. And I was nervous about that. And the next thing that I did was I knew that I needed to buy a ring. And so I did some reconnaissance, and I asked some of Katie's friends, you know, what kind of ring would she like, and and, uh, where can I get the best deal on a ring? And I ended up going to uh, Jared's Jewelers, mainly because I had seen the commercial that said he went to Jared's, and I thought, I want her to be able to say he went to Jared's, right? And so I went into Jared's, and I saved up as much as I could, and I bought Katie an engagement ring. And a few weeks later, I surprised her at Dana Point, got down on one knee, asked her to marry me, and she said yes, and the rest is history. You know, a ring, an engagement ring or a wedding ring, really is a symbol of love and commitment. But really, in our culture, we have many different symbols of love and symbols of commitment. And in fact, in many different cultures around the world, there are different symbols for love. Uh, For example, in Iceland and Finland, one of the greatest symbols of love is a harp. Because they believe that the strings on a harp uh, are symbolic of a ladder where your love is constantly ascending to higher levels. And so they have this symbol of love as the harp. You know, in ancient Greek culture, a symbol of love was the apple. And so if you gave someone an apple, it was not just, you know, here you go, if you're hungry, it was a romantic gesture. Here is an apple, a symbol of love. And so in many different cultures, there are different symbols for love. But today I want to zero in on the greatest symbol of love that the world has ever known, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, how can a cross, an invention of torture and brutality, be a symbol of love? How can a cross, a grotesque, inhumane thing, be a symbol 
of love. And yet that is exactly what it is this morning. Excuse me, James Montgomery Boyce said this, the cross stands as the focal point of the Christian faith. Without the cross, the Bible is an enigma and the gospel of salvation is an empty hope. And so at Rock Hill, we believe in the centrality of the cross. We believe in the power of the cross. We believe in the saving power of the cross. But, but the truth is today, not everyone holds to a biblical view of the cross. Not everyone believes in the saving power of the cross. Uh, uh, many times you'll see a picture of a cross, and on top of the cross there will be a sign, and you might see the letters I-N-R-I. How many of you have ever seen a painting or a picture and you've seen those letters, I-N-R-I? Anybody see that before? That is the Latin inscription or abbreviation for King of the Jews. And so you might see those letters, I-N-R-I. Well, several years ago, Yale University, they took the sign down, they removed those letters, I-N-R-I, and they added the letters R-O-F-L. Rolling on the floor, laughing as a mockery to the cross. Not everyone holds to a sacred view of the cross today. In fact, uh, one uh, professor from uh, Oxford University, A.J. Iyer, he said this, the idea that Jesus died on a cross for our sins is intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. And so there are people today that would reject the view of the cross. There are people today that might even laugh at the cross. And meanwhile, they are still searching for purpose, still searching for hope, still searching for meaning in life. But this is what the apostle Paul said. He said this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, rolling on the floor, laughing, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Can I remind you today that there is saving power in the cross of Jesus Christ? And the message of the gospel is a simple message of the cross. In fact, Paul went on, he said this in verse number 23 of the same chapter. But we preach Christ crucified. So Paul said, let me give you a little hermeneutical lesson. This is hermeneutics 101. You want to know what to preach and how to preach? Preach Christ crucified. And so the message of Rock Hill, the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible is simple. It's Christ crucified, resurrected for the sins of humanity. And so Christ crucified. He went on in chapter 2, Paul, and again, continuing this theme of the cross. And he said this in chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So in other words, Paul said, I don't want to get distracted by uh, anything else in life. I want to stay focused on the primary emphasis of the gospel message. I want to stay focused on the cross. And today we might get distracted from the cross. We might get desensitized to the cross. But Paul said, hey, I don't want to focus on anything else. I don't want to major on anything else save Jesus and Jesus crucified. And this morning... I want us to zero in once again on the cross. Last week, we saw the events leading up to the cross, and uh, we saw uh, the, the mockery and the beating and the scourging of Jesus, and really, we saw the tension with Pilate last week. Well, today, we're going to zero in on the crucifixion and the cross, starting in verse number 31, and what I want to do today is I want to give us three life-changing principles from the cross. Would that be okay today? And I can truly say life-changing because the cross is life-changing. And so I want to give us three principles today. If you're taking notes, you can jot a couple of these down. Number one is this. The cross requires a closer look. The cross requires a closer look. You know, so often when we consider the cross, it's on a hill called Calvary far, far away. 
and we consider the silhouette of a cross on a hill far away, and there's a cross in the distance, but I believe that we must take a closer look. This morning, I believe that we, what we need so desperately in our culture today is an up-close and personal look at the cross and what happened on the cross and what really does the cross mean. The cross requires a closer look. Let's pick up our text in verse number 31. The Bible says this. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put, down, put on his own raiment. And they led him away to crucify him. Verse 32. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled. Everybody say compelled. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And so Jesus was already beaten. He was already scourged. He had already experienced unfathomable suffering. And so Jesus was not in a physical condition to carry his own cross. And so it was customary in this culture where the Romans would, uh, the Romans would have someone else. They would select someone else to help carry the cross. And on this particular day, it was a man named Simon. And Simon was uh, called uh, to bear the cross. And, and so uh, uh, perhaps many times uh, they would just be carrying uh, the horizontal beam. The, the main beam would already be in the ground. Other times it was the whole cross. And so Simon was called on to uh, bear the cross for Jesus. The Bible says that Simon was from Cyrene. This was the capital of Libya on the continent of Africa, which tells us that Simon was traveling through for Passover. He was not from Jerusalem. He was traveling through for Passover, and the Romans called on him. They compelled him to carry the cross of Jesus. The word compelled is a strong word. It's not a suggestion. It's a requirement. You are now demanded uh, to, by law, to carry this cross. There would have been a certain shame that was uh, connotated with the cross, a certain, certain stigma that was associated with the cross. If anyone got an up-close and personal view of the cross, it was Simon from Cyrene. He heard what they were saying. He, he smelled the smells. He saw uh, the sights. He felt the weight of the cross, and he had an up-close and personal look at the cross. And today, what I believe we need so desperately is to be reminded of the weight of the cross, and we need to take a closer look at the cross. You know, Mark's gospel, thank you, Daniel, Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more insight to Simon, and it gives us a little bit more of a picture of what's taking place here. And in Mark's gospel, the Bible says this in Mark 15, verse 21, and they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, such an identification of his children, Alexander and Rufus, meant that they were well known. And so most commentators and scholars believe uh, that Simon of Cyrene ended up uh, believing in the one in whom the cross he carried. He ended up putting his faith in the Messiah because now his sons were recognized in the early church, and they were a well-known family in the early church. And so Simon, get this, Simon, who was just traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, ended up meeting the perfect Passover lamb. He ended up putting his faith in Christ. What seemed like an interruption what seemed like uh, something that perhaps he did not even want to do. There would have been a shame associated with that. Uh, now he's identifying with a criminal. Now he has to carry this cross, and even if he wanted to or not. And Simon could have seen this as an interruption, but God actually used this interruption to lead to his salvation. Aren't you thankful that God knows how to interrupt our schedule in order to accomplish something better? Aren't you thankful that God can interrupt and to bring us into a season of adversity to actually lead us to salvation? 
And so here is Simon of Cyrene, and he's called on to carry the cross, and he ends up giving his life to Christ and placing his faith in him. I love what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. Don't, don't be moved by these afflictions, these adversities in life. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. Don't you love that? That, in other words, the adversities that we face, the afflictions that we face in life are not there by accident. They're there by appointment. And here, right on schedule, Simon had an encounter with Jesus, and he had an up-close and personal look at the cross. And what I believe today, uh, for so many people that are searching for truth and searching for meaning and searching for purpose, what they need is an up-close and personal look at the cross and to examine the cross and to examine the evidence surrounding an empty tomb because a closer look of the cross for Simon changed his life forever. And what I believe today with all my heart is a closer look at the cross, a closer look at the empty tomb will change your life forever. And so the cross requires a closer look. We see the assignment uh, for Simon to bear the cross. But I want you to see not only his assignment. This morning, I want to bring it home. I want to talk about our assignment. Simon had an assignment to carry the cross. Can I tell you today, you have an assignment to carry a cross? Notice what Jesus said. Jesus made it emphatically clear in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so Jesus has called all of us to carry. He's called all of us to carry our cross, to take up our cross daily, to deny self and to take up our cross. You say, what does that mean? Arthur Pink, uh, he said this, taking up my cross means a life voluntarily surrendered to God. Whatever God wants, he can have. I'm going to surrender it all. And so we are called to deny ourselves. Now that's not something that we like to do in culture today. Not a whole lot of self-help seminars on denying self. There's a lot of self-help seminars on developing self, become a better version of you, become stronger, climb the ladder, uh, you know, uh, but denying self, I don't want to talk about that. Saying no to myself? Why would I do such a thing? A couple years ago, Time Magazine, they had a, they had a cover and they were doing it, you know, this study on, on millennials and the millennial generation, and, and we know that these are just generalizations, uh, but there's so much truth that we can learn from this, and, and the cover of the magazine said, the me, me, me generation. It's all about me. It's about what I need. It's about what I want. It's what's best for me, what's best for me and my own. I'm going to take care of, number one, me. You know, that is antithetical to a life of following Jesus because Jesus has called us to deny self, to take up our cross daily. Are we willing to associate with the cross? Are we willing to identify with the shame that is associated with the cross? The, the stigma that comes with being a follower of Jesus. Do we shy away from that? Oh, I don't want anybody to know. Or are we not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so Jesus said, take up your cross daily to deny self. Uh, to quote Arthur Pink one more time, he said this, growth in grace is growth downward. It is the forming of a lower estimate of ourselves. It is a deepening realization of our nothingness. It is a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. Now, he is not devaluing the worth of a human soul. But what he is saying is we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And so often it's all about me and what I want to do and my problems. And, and talk about me when Jesus said, take up your cross. Follow me. De deny self. And so today the cross 
requires a closer look. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse number 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ as you're carrying the cross, happy are ye. The best life possible is a life that says, I'm denying myself and I'm taking up my cross daily and I'm following Jesus. That is not a secondary life. Uh, That is not a bad life. That is the best Zoe abundant life imaginable, following Jesus. And when you do carry that shame and stigma that comes with the cross, happy are you. There's joy in following Jesus. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's evil spoken of. But on your part, he is glorified. And so the cross is not something that we view at a distance on a hill far, far away. The cross is something that we have to take an up-close and personal look into. Thomas Akempis, he said this, carry the cross patiently and with perfect submission. And in the end, it shall carry you. And so the cross requires a closer look. Here's the second thought today. Number two is this. The cross gives us an accurate theology on suffering. So many people, even amongst Christians today, we have a distorted view of suffering. And why would a good God allow evil and suffering? And why would a, why would a good God do this? And we kind of have this distorted view of evil and suffering. But really, a look at the cross gives us an accurate theology on suffering because Jesus is the ultimate example of suffering. And I want us to see from the cross and from the suffering of Jesus on the cross a couple of things that I believe will be helpful for us. The first thing that I want us to see is that this was voluntary suffering, that that Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. Notice verse number 34. Everybody stay with me this morning. They give him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. Now, this was a narcotic of sorts. This is something that the Romans did to kind of uh, uh, help ease the pain. And this was an act of mercy. If someone was going to the cross and it was unimaginable, unbearable pain, they would give them this gall, this drink that was, that was a narcotic of sorts. And so they gave it to Jesus, and we had tasted thereof. He would not drink. Why? Why would Jesus not take something that would help him numb the pain, uh, take something that might make this a little bit easier? Because Jesus would not have his senses void. Jesus was voluntarily accepting the suffering that was coming his way. And Alexander McLaren, he says it so succinctly. He says, the cup which he had to drink needed that he should be in full possession of all his sensibilities to pain and all of his unclouded firmness of resolve. And so his patient lips closed against the offered mercy. He would not drink because he would suffer. And he would suffer because he would redeem. His last act before he was nailed to the cross was an act of voluntary refusal of an open door of escape from some uh, portion of his pains. In other words, Jesus was willingly accepting all the pain. Don't take any suffering from me. I need all of it. It was a voluntary suffering. But not only was it a voluntary suffering, it was a vicarious suffering. Uh, Vicarious, by definition, is acting for one another. Uh, acting for someone else. And Jesus was vicariously suffering. And he was vicariously suffering for you and for me. And I want us to see it in in the text in verse number 35. It says this, and they crucified him. And they crucified him. Uh, Four simple words to describe the worst of the worst of humanity. Four simple words. 
they crucified him and they crucified him. Why did he do this? Why did he go to the cross and experience a crucifixion from which we get our word excruciating? This terrible time at the cross, why? Well, Hebrews says this, Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So to bear the sins of many. He did it for you and for me. He suffered, but he suffered vicariously. He he suffered uh, in your place as a substitution. You know, ancient writers are unanimous in talking about the horrible, depraved nature of the cross and really that the that crucifixions were a disgusting business. Uh, The Romans did not invent crucifixions. Uh, A crucifixion was invented by the Assyrians. It was really perfected by the Persians. And then the Romans mass-produced crucifixions. And all of these ancient writers are unanimous in saying that this was a disgusting and grotesque business. Even when Paul described the death of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, he said, even the death of the cross even the death of the cross. And so this was an unimaginable uh, uh, event where they would nail his hands and feet to this tree. Notice verse number 35. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vestures did they cast lots. And and so this was, again, another fulfillment of prophecy. You can read about it in Psalm chapter 22. And uh, all of this suffering was done vicariously. And I want to read a quote today uh, by... Um, by, by a pastor and writer, J.C. Ryle. And it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I believe it's so powerful. So I want you to hang in there uh, with me today. Everybody ready uh, for this quote this morning? Uh, it helps us really understand this vicarious um, nature of suffering that Jesus endured. He said this, was he scourged? It was that by his scourging, we are healed. Was he condemned though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothing? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a male factor and numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last and experience the most painful and disgraceful of deaths? It was that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. Is anybody thankful this morning for the vicarious suffering of Jesus Christ? He died and suffered so that he could forgive you of your sin. Every act of adultery, every infidelity, every addiction, every lie, every bitterness, anything that has come into your life that is sinful, Jesus suffered and died vicariously for you and for me. We ought to be thankful for the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It was for us. It was voluntarily. He was not going to drink that gall that narcotic he was vicariously going because he knew that he had to suffer in our place hebrews tells us he bore the sins of many it was for you and for me see see history tells us that christ died but theology tells us christ died for our sins vicarious let's keep reading in verse number 36 it says this and sitting down they watched him there they watched Jesus on the cross, they observed. They looked upon him. 
and set over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, they would typically in Roman culture, right, whatever the accusation was above the criminal, so that those that would pass by, which, by the way, the place of the skull, Golgotha, is not in a faraway place. It was in a well, uh, commonly trafficked place so that uh, passerbys could observe those being crucified on a common road. And so many would pass by, and they would write on top uh, a sign, an inscription of what they were accused of, of what they did, so that everybody would know why they were being crucified. And so Jesus, upon his cross, it said, Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, of course, they did this to mock Jesus. But ironically, this act that was done in mocking was actually the first gospel tract ever to be written. Because it was this sign that the thief would read and end up saying, Lord, remember me in thy kingdom. See, don't ever forget that what the enemy meant for evil, God can turn for good. The enemy said, I'm going to put this sign up. We're going to mock Jesus. But it was that sign that actually led to the salvation of others. Never doubt uh, what God is doing in your pain, in your affliction, in your adversity. God is always in control. He's always working behind the scenes. We can't always see why certain things are happening. We don't always understand uh, why we have to carry uh, the cross and we can't comprehend it. But can I just tell you today that sometimes in life we have to carry that which we cannot comprehend. We're going to have to carry some things in life. We're going to have to go through storms that we can't quite make sense of. We're going to have to uh, travel through adversity that we don't know why we're going through it. But God is always in control. And so they put up this sign, Jesus, King of the Jews. Notice verse number 39, 38. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And so Jesus was in the middle, two thieves on either side. It's interesting. Matthew uses a particular word for thieves. Uh, There's two different words in the Greek for thieves. One emphasizes the secrecy in stealing. The other emphasizes the violence and the openness in stealing. And Matthew uses the second word, emphasizing the violence and the violent nature of this thievery. And so we know that these criminals on either side of Jesus were not good men. They were violent uh, men. Uh, No doubt, uh, like we learned last week with Barabbas, who was a murderer. Jesus is now numbered amongst the transgressors, fulfilling prophecy once again. Notice verse number 39. And they that passed by reviled him, mocking, shaking their heads, verse 40, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are truly who you say you are, then come down from the cross. But aren't you thankful? It's the very act that Jesus did not come down from the cross that we can be saved. Jesus had no intention of coming down from the cross because he had every intention of coming up from the grave. So Jesus would not come down. And so they're mocking. They're laughing. And this leads us to our third and final thought today about the cross. The cross must come before the crown. The cross must come before the crown. Now, let's pick it up in verse 41. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. And then we will believe him. He saved others. He cannot save himself. If he be, if he be, if he is the king of Israel. See, what confused them the most and what looked so... um, 
almost laughable to the crowd that day was that Jesus was a king. He didn't look like a king. This did not look like a powerful king who was bleeding and suffering and dying on a cross. See, they did not expect a king to be on a cross. They would expect a king to have a crown. That would make sense. But a king to have a cross, that that didn't make any sense at all. And this is one of the upside down ways of the kingdom of God, that a cross must come before the crown. And today we want kind of a more palatable version of Christianity. We all want the crown. We want the glory associated with the crown. We want the blessings of Christianity. We want the benefits of Christianity. But we don't always want to pick up our cross daily. But please hear me today. The cross must come before the crown. And so they were mocking Jesus if he's the king, if he's a king. He's a king up here on the cross. And they were mocking uh, this, this sign, verse number 42. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. In other words, they chimed in as well. And they were mocking Jesus as well. And they were saying, he's a king. Uh, Surely he's not a king. But Matthew ends there in the conversation with the thieves. But in Luke's gospel, we see a little bit more of the conversation that took place. And as we close today, I want us to see a little bit more of this conversation. Would that be okay? These thieves that we just read about in verse number 42 that kind of chimed in, they were continuing on. And uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, we learn this. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39, it says this. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, everybody say the other. And so one of those thieves was mocking and reviling and saying, If you can save yourself, then save yourself and save us while you're at it. But the other answering rebuked him rebuked the other thief and so you can imagine as they're hanging there Jesus in the middle they are having this conversation in great agony shouting at one another and now the one thief rebukes him saying dost not thou fear God seeing thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds he had an acknowledgement of sin he said we're getting what we deserve we rec- I recognize that. We should be on the cross today. But this man in the middle hath done nothing amiss. And so as the conversation continues, we learn that one thief recognizes this man, he's done nothing wrong. And what happens next is this thief does two things. And I want us to see them today and we'll be done. First, he expresses faith. This thief on the cross, he expresses faith. And we see it in verse number 42, Luke chapter 23, verse 42. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Lord, that was acknowledging his deity in thy kingdom. That was acknowledging his sovereignty. And so what he does here is he expresses faith. Lord, remember me in thy kingdom. Now, if there was ever a moment, like I mentioned earlier, if there was ever a moment that Jesus did not look like a king, it was in this moment. If there was ever a time when it didn't seem as though This man, Jesus, was the Christ and that he was the king and he had power to save. It was this moment. And that makes the statement of the thief on the cross all the more amazing because it truly required faith. You know, they're saying that he saved others and they're asking him to save himself. But the thief was thinking, if he did truly save others, then maybe he could save me. Lord, remember me in thy kingdom. He expressed faith. Can I encourage you today, in your life and in mine, things aren't always going to look good. From an outward perspective, things aren't always going to look in alignment. If there was ever a time when things looked out of control, it was in this moment. 
But this man expressed faith. John Calvin said that this is perhaps one of the greatest expressions of faith in all the New Testament. On the cross, looking at a dying Jesus, pleading, saying, Lord, remember me in thy kingdom. He expressed faith. But not only did he express faith, he experienced forgiveness. It says in verse 43, everybody still with me this morning? He says in verse 43 of Luke 23, and Jesus said unto him, verily, I say unto thee, verily, I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Verily. I like that word, verily. It's not a word that we say often. How many of you use that word this week? Anybody? Don't lie in church, man. Verily. The word means certainly, assuredly. You can have confidence. Verily. I love that word. It speaks of confirmation. I love a good confirmation number. If I'm going to a hotel, if I'm going somewhere, I want to make sure that I have a confirmation number. You know, there's been a couple of times I've made a mobile deposit at the bank, and I'll go in, and I'll deposit a check, and I won't get a confirmation email. And it always bothers me because I think if that money doesn't go through, how am I ever going to prove that I deposited that? I want a confirmation number. You know, just this past week, I was checking into a hotel, and the person right in front of me uh, got denied. There was no more rooms. And uh, they said, sorry, we have no rooms available. And I was thinking, man... I hope that they save my room. We walked up and gave him the confirmation number. And sure enough, we had a reservation. We had a room. And we had that confidence because we had that confirmation. Can I tell you when it comes to your reservation in heaven, you have a confirmation. His name is Jesus Christ. And because Jesus said it, we can believe it. He says, verily, assuredly, verily, verily, today. You will be with me in Paris, with me. You know, the best part about heaven is being with Jesus. Heaven is a person before it's a place. You will be with me. You'll be with me in paradise. And so because this man expressed faith, he experienced forgiveness. And today, if you have never expressed faith in Jesus Christ, today can be the day of salvation for you. In the room online, you can put your faith in Jesus and the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. And you can experience the forgiveness of sins with the confidence, verily, with the confidence that Jesus rose again three days later, conquering sin, death, and the grave. But on the cross today, what we see is a symbol of love, the greatest love that the world has ever known. And I want to close with this. I read this story several years ago, maybe five, six years ago. I've I've mentioned it before. There was a lady in Wyoming. Her name was Shelly Golay, and her husband passed away from cancer. And a couple of months after her husband passed away, it was Valentine's Day, and she received in her home a bouquet of flowers. And she was a little bit confused by this, and she thought, maybe this is from my kids, or maybe it's from someone in my family. They sent me these flowers, and so she called up the flower shop. And she said, I got these flowers. Who are they from? And the flower shop said, they're from your husband. She was confused, not knowing why or what this meant. And the owner of the flower shop said, before your husband died, he set it up to have flowers delivered to you every Valentine's Day for the rest of your life. She went on to tell the reporters, his love for me knows no boundaries, even in death. And I tell you today that the love of God for you has no boundaries. Even in the death of the cross, 
And today as we consider what Jesus did on the cross, remember, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. It was vicarious by nature. Today we see the greatest symbol of love the world has ever known. And the cross demands a response. If you're not saved today, you can be saved. You can experience the forgiveness of sins. If you are saved today, you've been called to carry, to deny self, and on a daily basis, pick up your cross and follow Jesus, and it's always worth it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.